D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor in Wales, and he had a successful practice, but he was overwhelmed with a sense that God was calling him into pastoral ministry, and so he, he resigned his work as a medical doctor, and he became a pastor. He was an associate pastor at Westminster Chapel in London under G. Campbell Morgan for a long time. And then uh, when Campbell Morgan retired, he became the pastor. And he was there, I think, 37 years, preached through big chunks of the Bible really slow. And, the, and the, the building filled up while he was there repeatedly, not only on the Lord's Day, but sometimes on Friday night with students because he was just a systematic teacher of the word. One of the things he taught through was the book of Ephesians. And his talks are captured in a six-volume set, which I have of his messages on Ephesians. And I want to read to you something he said. But before I read it to you, I want to tell you something that happened to him, which qualifies him not only as a student of the word, but as a person who understood what it's like to be involved in a conflict. He was, became the lead pastor, the teaching pastor of the church in just before the World War II. And, and there was a, the bombing of London during that time in which case many people fled to the country, but he maintained his pulpit and continued to have services once. There was a bombing that was so close it damaged the church. He was praying while the bombs dropped. And when people looked up from his prayer, there was a cloud of white dust over the whole congregation. One lady said, I felt like we might have been transported directly to heaven. And he continued, he finished his prayer and then he continued his preaching. Um, and so D. Martin Lloyd-Jones knew a little bit what it was like to prepare congregants for a battle, for wartime. Most of you aren't really old enough to remember, like, the great world wars. Obviously, World War II, very few remain who lived through World War II. Some have, but we won't point them out today, just out of courtesy. But when you talk to people that lived through the Great Depression or a world war, and as it is with serious conflicts that our world has had, they mark people for life. And they, they, have a set, they have a different kind of mentality than other people. And Lloyd-Jones says to his people, people who understand they're at war, they think different than people who aren't at war. My dad lived through World War II. My grandparents, they would talk a lot about rationing. They would talk about hanging on every word on the radio. They would talk about deprivation that they had because they had a wartime mentality. And what we're saying, what we're going to say today, and what I want to quote from Lloyd-Jones, it's actually a secondary quote from John Stott quoting Lloyd-Jones, but I want to share it with you today because I think it kind of gets us, gets our heart in the right place to think about we're in a, we're in a battle. And, and there's, a, there, there are, there's a specific way that we're supposed to fight. And there are specific weapons that we're given to fight with. And Christians sometimes get this wrong. And we want to get it right. Stock quotes Lloyd-Jones saying, the abrupt, he's talking about his teaching through Ephesians as he arrives at the same passage that we've arrived at. Your Bible should be open in your lap to Ephesians chapter 6 in your Bible, verses 10 through 20. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. The abrupt transition from the peaceful homes and healthful days of the previous paragraphs to the hideous malice and devilish plots in this section causes us a painful shock. But it is an essential one. 
We all wish we could spend our lives in undisturbed tranquility among our loved ones at home in the fellowship of God's people. But the way, the way of the escapists have been, has been effectively blocked to us. Christians have to face the prospect of conflict with God's enemy and theirs. And we need to accept the implications of this conflict, the concluding um, with God's enemy and ours. And we need to accept the implications of this concluding passage of Paul's letter it is a stirring call to battle, he said. Do you not hear the bugle and the trumpet in it? We are being roused. We are being stimulated. We're being set upon our feet. We're being told to be men. The whole tone is martial. It's manly. It's strong. Moreover, there will be no cessation of hostilities, not even a temporary truce or ceasefire, until the end of life or of history when the peace of heaven is attained. It seems probable that Paul implies this by his finally, for the better manuscripts have an expression which could be translated not finally, introducing the conclusion, but henceforward, meaning for the remaining time. If this is correct, he says, then the, apostles in, the apostle is indicating that the whole of the interim period between the Lord's two comings is to be characterized by conflict. The peace which God has made through Christ's cross, is to be experienced only in the midst of relentless struggle against evil. And for this, the strength of the Lord and the armor of God are indispensable. Or you could say it like Isaac Watts wrote it in a poem which became a hymn. Am I a soldier of the cross? Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord, Watts said. They said it of John the Baptist in Matthew 11. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. And there is, of course, obviously, and you know this, ladies, a place of courage for women in wartime and men. We're not, we're not thrust into this fight, however, unprepared. We go in the strength of the Lord. That's why we're strong in the Lord and the power of his might. When we have, when we, now we've arrived at the concluding passage in Ephesians. One thing that we want to see is that it's not new material what, what he's doing now is summarizing what he's already said, but he's using a vivid illustration. Can I tell you a pastor secret right now? I tell you one of my favorite pastors. Raise your hand if you would like me to tell you a pastor secret. Or smile, yeah. Okay, so here, here it is. And that is, do not stay up in the clouds of abstraction every Sunday until noon. In other words, don't just talk about things that you can't taste or touch or hear or feel or smell. But describe the wonderful things like grace and love and faith, things that are real but you can't taste them or touch them or smell them. Describe them in concrete terms. And this is why some pastors use stories. But you wouldn't have to use stories to speak in concrete terms. Paul does this in a powerful way. He's like, like this prisoner, like this, I'm a prisoner, like this soldier I'm chained to right here. Look at him now. He's got boots and a belt and a breastplate and he's got a shield and a helmet and such. He's got a sword. And then he, he uses this as an analogy. And it was interesting is this works. I was talking with Judy in the office today. Judy was saved 
as a young teenage girl at the Mayfair Bible Church, as a part of the ministry of the Mayfair Bible Church up in the Flint area in Flushing. And, and we were talking about this today in the office. We were working together and she smiled and she says, I always remember when I was first taught that. Now that's what every pastor wants to hear. You, you want to talk to a person who's, who a few decades have gone by and they say, I still remember the messages about the armor of the believer. We have not been left powerless in this fight that we're facing, our, of fighting our own sin and fighting the Satan and his schemes around us. We're not left in our own power. We have the power of God. The passage here is telling us this. And we have equipment. We have effective equipment. Now, we want to understand how to use that equipment. And we want to, we want to faithfully do it so that we're skilled in the use of, of that, that, those, that armor and that, that equipment. And then we'll notice, so, so we're going to talk about what we have. And we're going to do this in two weeks' time. This week and next week, we'll talk about the six different things. Some people say seven, like prayer is one of the parts of the armor. So you could think that if you wanted to. But we'll do it the first three this week and the next three next week. We're going to take our time. We're going to talk about what we have, and then we're going to talk about how to use it. What we have and how to use it. In other words... The, the sermon title for this week and for next week is How to Fight Like a Christian. And I don't mean, you know, interpersonal conflict where, you, where you're being mean to other people. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about, like, fighting as a couple. That's, that's a different message altogether. This is how to resist evil. And remember this, the worst evil you will ever face starts, guess where? In your own heart. You're, you're, you're your, your biggest enemy. And so just keep that in mind as we go. There are enemies surrounding us, but that, that enemy even within us, that indwelling sin. And so we're going to talk about what we have. And you notice in the, in the passage here, notice what it says. Verse 10, finally, brothers, uh, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is sisters too, brothers and sisters. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. The, the Greek word sounds like panoply. So it's, been, it's often been transliterated panoply. So in Old English, you'll hear people talk about, or maybe in the song that we sing, uh, and for the fight, put on the panoply of God. It's from the Greek word there for armor. It's the equipment that the soldier has. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in, in heavenly places. And therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Notice it's complete, and it's from God. It was his first. He gives it to us. The whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. And then, and then here we go. Stand therefore having fastened on, and here's the first uh, element, the belt of truth, truth like a belt, having the breastplate of righteousness, righteousness like a breastplate, and as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace, or readiness, shoes like readiness for the gospel of peace. These are the, these are th the first three of the elements that we have that we're given. Let's go over them real quick. We have a belt, and the belt is what? Truth, belt of truth. 
I'm not a police officer, so I get myself in trouble here real quickly. But I think a police officer has a lot of things he or she needs strapped to their belt. Am I right? Lots of that stuff, that belt holds all these different tools and implements like that stick that you want to swack bad guys, your taser to tase them before you have to shoot them. You know, just the stuff that you need. And you know what? I, I, I tell you what, I, I shouldn't tell you this, but we have a gun in our house, but I don't have any bullets. <laughs> so I probably should. I, I should be telling you that because if you're bad, you go, let's go out to Ken's house because he's completely defenseless. But I might have a bullet by the time you get there, so don't try it. I'm, my wife regularly thinks we should... Oops, I wasn't going to pick on you today. It's too late now. Thinks we should have a gun. Anyway, I don't have a bullet. I have, I have my, my grandpa's old shotgun, and I tell him, somebody comes in, I'm just going to go, I'm gonna, it's a break. It's like, what do you call a gun that does this? No, it's just it's one barrel. But anyway, it goes click. So that click is all I got right there. And I could thug, I could... I could whack somebody. I'm getting off the subject. With, which you shouldn't do. Um, but what we have is a belt that, that, that holds in place the things we need. And this belt is representative of truth. We'll get, we'll, we'll, truth, our vital, like our vital equipment. We'll get into detail in a minute. But maybe like, think like a police officer with a radio and a taser, a gun and his whacker stick and his handcuffs and the stuff that he needs. And I th that's what I was going to say. Um, you, and this is actually a meaningful thing I'm going to say now. You might think, you know, I don't have to have a gun in my house. And you know why you think that? Because you have a phone <laughs> where you can call a guy with a gun to come to your house. Am I right? Am I, I'm, this isn't a gun sermon. <laughs> I mean, this is not a gun sermon. It's, it's a like spiritual warfare sermon. You might say, I just want to sit on my porch and I don't, wanna, I don't have any fight with anybody. Well, guess what? It doesn't work that way. You can sit on your porch if you want to, but the bad guys are coming to get you. And they are coming. And I'm not talking about crime in America. This is not what our sermon is about. I'm talking about the dark forces all around us. They're not going to stop because we don't want to be combatants. And so we got to understand, I, got, I, need what, I need what God says I have to do what God says I should do. So you should be asking the question right now, Ken, please be more specific. Tell me exactly how to use these things. So one is the belt, and that belt is what? Truth. Truth. And the other is a breastplate, and that breastplate is like, righteousness is like a breastplate. Righteousness like a breastplate covers your vital organs, protects you. So righteousness is our vital protection is how I see that, in what way is this like that? We'll get into detail later, but just on the first pass, we'll say, well, the belt is like holds the things in place that we need. That's the truth that gives us access to what we need. And the breastplate protects us, our vitals, from, da from danger, from damage. And this is what? What is our breastplate? Right, can you tell you got to work with me today? I'm going to make you work for your lunch. Yeah, your, your breastplate, righteousness, and then you have, I'll just say boots, that way they all start with B, belt, breastplate, boots. Even though I think the Roman soldiers might be had hobnail sandals. I was going to wear, Getty, I was going to wear, by the way, thank you for your solo today. Did you notice that Eddie soloed and then later, did you hear I soloed? Yes. I, we both soloed. So Eddie and I were just extroverts. Sometimes we'll solo even if it's not in the schedule. Anyway, Eddie said yesterday he one time noticed I preached in flip-flops. I'm like, that's because... Jesus preached in sandals. 
I want to remind you. And the, and the Roman soldiers had sandals. Now, uh, and these sandals were a special equipment that would give them special readiness, special traction. And you, you know what it's like not to have good shoes. When I was a kid, my dad was careful to try to save money. And so we bought these shoes like at what they called Kmart. And they were plastic. They were, they were tennis shoes, but they were plastic. They were really a bright color of yellow. So that everybody noticed them. When I tried out for basketball, though, I had an excuse for not making the team because they were slippery. And they didn't, they weren't, they, they were just hard plastic and they were real slippery because they were inexpensive. And I made a joke out of it. I called them my screaming yellow zonkers. And I gave a speech about it. But really, I was kind of wanted to have Converse because all the cool people had Converse tennis shoes. This was way back before Adidas and Puma. These were Converse. They were very the popular people that, whose feet stopped when they were supposed to have Converse. And my dad helped me throw paper. He got me a paper out. He helped me throw papers in the morning. I made more money. I went and I bought my own pair of Converse. I had no more excuse for not making the basketball team, you got to play basketball, you want good shoes for basketball, don't you? And, if, and you, you have special shoes, people that are real serious about biking, watch the shoes they buy. They're almost as much as the bike itself. They're special shoes. And I imagine for a soldier, you'd want to be well prepared with good shoes. And, and this is what he says we have. We have a readiness of the gospel of peace. Somehow the readiness of the gospel of peace is like shoes so this is what we have. Now, before we describe, before we explain this, and I, I want to do a little teaching about something that if you look at our church's social media, you'll see a little thing I put up on my social media. I put up on the church's social media, put on my Facebook page in case you do that. It's about the tenses of salvation. Did you, any of you see that? The tenses of salvation. So in, in one sense, when we say we're saved, we use the past tense, like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved. When you're saved, it means saved from, in the Bible, it's usually talking about being delivered or saved or rescued from sin. So you're a sinner. You have sinned against God. You have broken his holy law. And you, and you are under condemnation like a drowning woman, a drowning man. And you must be saved, delivered. And we're saved by, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 and 9, we're saved by grace through faith. That we're not saved by church ordinances, we're not saved by baptism, we're not saved by marriage, we're not saved by confession, we're not saved by memorizing a catechism, we're saved by, say it with me, by grace through faith. There's a lot of fogginess with a lot of people on this, and it messes people up. We are saved, say it with me, by grace through faith. You can say by grace alone, through faith alone. This is the consistent teaching of the Bible. The only way you get anywhere else is you got to take somebody else's changing what the Bible says and their commentary. But according to the Bible itself, we're saved, past tense, by grace through faith. When we believe, we're saved from sin. And that's called, that, we, we sometimes call that justified. We're just as if we'd never sinned in our standing, our legal standing before God. So the past tense of salvation, if you're already saved, is justification. But the present tense, sometimes the Bible talks about uh, we're being saved. What it means is not that, sa that, that, that being delivered from sin's penalty is, is a progressive thing, because it's an instantaneous thing. But being delivered from sinful experience, you and I both know, is a progressive thing, isn't it? Am I right? 
of course, of course, you know I'm right. Everybody here is a witness to that. Let me just read it the way I wrote it to save you time and to be super clear. And you go online, you can read this because this is super important that you get this in your heart to understand what Paul is going to say about how to use the armor. We have to understand that Ephesians deals with past, present, and future tenses of salvation. Saved in the past, that is justification. Being saved from the power of sin, that is sanctification. Being delivered from the very presence of sin, this is not original with me, you probably heard it before, glorification, but it's very, very helpful. So somewhere in my youth, from my dad's preaching, or maybe a Bible conference in my youth or childhood, someone explained the tenses of salvation, past, present, future. There's a sense in which we've been saved, a sense in which we're being saved, and a sense in which we will be saved. Three tenses of the gospel, if you will. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. Which is it? It's all three. Each of these have a name. Saved in the past tense is justification. Earlier, in a key part of this letter, Paul wrote this, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And we're being saved progressively. That's sanctification. That's why we make such, we make much of sanctification. You'll hear us talking about this here as a process because it is. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it's the power of God. The, those of us who are being saved. He also wrote in 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. In what sense are we being saved? We're being delivered from the power of sin in our life. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin against us. Am, are you tracking with me? These are the senses. This is important that you understand. There's a third sense and a most wonderful one. We will ultimately and eternally be completely saved from the very, say it, the presence of sin, right? You knew that, the presence of sin. We're saved in the past from the penalty of sin, saved in, in sanctification from the ongoing power of sin. We'll be saved it ultimately when Jesus returns or when we die as believers from the presence of sin altogether. Somebody say amen right there. Amen, man. That's, that'll be a time. This is what it says in Romans 13. I'm sorry, Romans 5, 9 and 10. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, ultimately delivered from sin in heaven in our glorified state. Romans 13, 11 says, besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And so the tenses of salvation have to do with salvation from sin. And we can't overstate this because it's the underlying theme in everything Paul ever writes, and especially in Ephesians. So when we're justified once and for all, in the past, we're saved from the penalty of sin. As we're being sanctified, we're being delivered from the power of sin. In our glorified state, we will be delivered, saved from the very presence of sin. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why did you make such a big deal out of that? I'll tell you why. Because when I was a boy in a Bible conference in the summer, I needed to hear that. I needed to know that there is a sense in which I am fully and finally and completely and totally right with God from the moment that I believe that all my sins 
were taken to Calvary on the cross. Past, present, and future. And I also need to understand why then do I still feel like I'm battling with sin? And is there any hope that one day I won't have to do this anymore? And then some faithful Bible preacher said, well, there are three ways the Bible talks about salvation. And I was like, now that is very helpful. And I wanted to be helpful to you too. John Stott, the great Anglican pastor, and by the way, a birder, Dave, um, he wrote a book on birding. You can see if you want to someday. Um, He said, he's argued that when Paul was reasoning with Felix in, in the book of Acts in chapter 24 and verse 25, he was referring to all three of these He reasoned with him, do you remember what it said? Of righteousness and self-control and judgment to come. Hey, Felix, you are unrighteous and you act unrighteous and someday you're going to face God. So if you're not saved, this is just all bad news. If you haven't been born again by the power of God, trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then you are not delivered from sin's penalty, but it's still on you. And you certainly have no hope of being delivered from sin's power because you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you. And you will not ultimately deliver from the presence of sin, but will face eternal conscious torment away from God in hell. And the Bible is very plain, very clear about that. It's not, it warns us regularly. And so we have then, we arrive in, like in Romans chapter 8 in a place that theologians and Bible students sometimes call the golden chain of salvation. And you'll, you'll, you'll know why it's called this when I read it to you. It's a beautiful expression in a letter that Paul wrote to Romans, and it says this in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 29, get the golden chain, get the links in the golden chain. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You have almost all of those referred to there in what's called the golden chain of salvation. You want that golden chain of salvation to describe you. And you begin by confessing that you do not have the righteousness that you need before God. And you never would be able to in all of your life be good enough to make up for the bad that you've already done. Even if you appear good on the surface, you haven't broken any criminal laws. This is something the Bible is plain about, and I wanted to go over that because now it helps us to understand that when we talk about each of the pieces of this armor, you want to look at them as something you already have and that is already true about you in the sense of your justification and something that you do in the sense of your sanctification, both are true, and something that will be completely and fully yours one day in your glorified state, you have that to look forward to. Does that make sense? So now we look at these, and there are two basic points in my little tiny message here. One is, there are realities, there are realities that we put on. These these pieces of armor are realities that we put on that are true about us who are justified. They're realities. And that's why, you know, in Ephesians, it starts in chapters 1, 2, 3, telling about our riches in Christ, telling about all that's already true about us in Christ, and it keeps talking about how we are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And then the, some Bible scholars, when they talk about, I, I kind of don't agree with them, but I get where they're coming from. When they talk about the Christian's armor, they say Paul's not referring to a soldier. Paul's referring to Old Testament descriptions of God. 
Now, you want to listen to these people because they're smart Bible students, and so there's something to that. New Testament writers were Old Testament aware. And this is not the armor of Paul or your armor first. It's what? The armor of? It's who God is. So this is true. Whether Paul was, was initially thinking that or not, guys, we, we could arm wrestle about that. But Pastor Jordan was in my office. He's pretty studied on this. And he was, he was telling me how, giving me Old Testament passages about each one of the pieces of armor and how it describes God. This is the armor of who God is. When we are justified, we are in Christ and all that God is, in a sense, to transfer the communicable attributes can be communicated to us and not in the level that God is. But in other words, God is love and we can be loving. God is righteous and we can live righteously. We can be righteous. God is a God of peace and we can participate in peace. But so the, so the armor is who Jesus is and we're in him so the armor, the pieces of armor then are realities that we remind ourselves of and in so doing, we put them on. Does that make sense? We're in Christ. We have these things. We have Christ, so we have these things. Jesus is truth and we have him, so we have truth. And Jesus is righteousness and we have Jesus' righteousness because we have him. Thanks be unto God. And Jesus is peace, the gospel, the good news of peace. And we have peace and prepared with that because we have him. What do we do then? What does it look like? Then you remind yourself of that. That's why Paul goes in and he does this in all of his epistles. The first three chapters, he's just teaching of who you are. So it's really important that you know who you are. I have a testimony. I won't read it to you. A young woman in a former church sent me a testimony and she talked about her life just spiraling downward. She's drinking and partying and carrying on and doing all kinds of really not smart, bad things with her friends because she doesn't think anything of herself, she's saying in her testimony. But then one day somebody began to say who she was and who she was as a creation of God and who she could be in Christ. And she says her whole life changed when she saw herself the way God sees her. Both her absolute desperate situation of being lost and the potential that she has in being clothed in Christ her whole life. She's on the mission field this week. I tried to get a hold of her, but she's on the mission field this week. Serve the Lord on the mission field. And when she comes back, there might be an assignment for her in her local area where the great tragedy occurred. But she saw, she understand, she understood who she was and who she was in Christ. This we need to understand. This is what the this is one of the things that Paul is saying, and he's illustrating it here at the end of this letter by saying, you put on Christ, you put on truth. You put on righteousness, Christ, you put on righteousness. You're in his righteousness. You stand in his righteousness. And when you put on peace and preparation of the gospel of peace, the good news of peace, that you, you're in Christ. So if you're in Christ, you're not a powerless pauper, but you're a powerful heir. Listen to what he said earlier in Ephesians this is Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Don't call yourself poor. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to those who believe? Don't call yourself weak. When he raised him from the dead and put him above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that's named in every age. You, I know you're thinking, you're thinking, we live in the worst time ever. Okay, maybe. 
But it's not a worse time than the power of God. You are wealthy in Christ and powerful in Christ because you're in Christ. So he was saying in Ephesians. So in Ephesians, Ephesians 3, in the prayer in Ephesians 1, the prayer in Ephesians 3, he's telling us to remember these things. Uh, this is what I pray that you will, it's, it's like put it on in the, in, the, in, the, in the grammar of the passage that we're talking about. It's believing this to be true. It's worshiping into this. It's thinking about how this is true, that, that, that where we already are. And this is what it says in Ephesians 3, that according to the riches, this is Paul's prayer, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner person. Spiritual strength is available to you because you're in Christ, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him that it's able to do abundantly more than we ask or think according to the power that's working in us. There's an actual power working in us through God to bring us to, through our sanctification stage to our glorification stage, from our justification stage. This is, so we stand, these three things. We stand in truth. We put it on. We're confident that we believe, what we believe is true. We stand in truth, in Jesus' truth. We know what we believe is true. We have truth that gives us great strength. We, our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. We know this through scripture alone. And if we put any man or men equal, on equal footing with God's word in changing that, which men will we believe are to be believed over God's word? We have God's word on it that when we believe that we're in Christ and there we, therefore we have his truth and righteousness and peace. So we've we, some people pray that into their hearts. They, in other words, in order to put this on or think about it or to be aware of it, they pray. I have a friend who gets up in the morning and he prays and he puts on the armor in his brain, in, in his mind as he prays. You could do it that way. Or you could just pick one at a time and you could say, Jesus is truth and I'm already, I have the truth because I have Jesus. And Jesus is righteousness even though I know I'm unrighteous. But he is righteous and I'm hidden in him and his righteousness is mine before God. And I remind myself of that. I'm kind of preaching the gospel to myself. Maybe you do it through singing or going to a place where this is being sung. Maybe there's a favorite author that she writes in a way that's just really lucid for you. And you go back and read her writing or his writing. Or maybe it's a YouTube video that you watch or, or a pastor that God uses to encourage you. Just go back and remind yourself who you are. This is what it looks like to fight. First, there are realities that we put on, and, and then we're to see them really as, as practices that we obey or as responsibilities, if you will, that we take up. The realities that we put on, remind ourselves about, their, but the, the, the three things, or the six things, in, in two weeks we'll talk about all six, they're things that are true about us, but they're also things that, we, that we're empowered to do. Does that make sense? Am I, am I losing you? So we stand in truth, we stand in righteousness, there was a young man once studying to be a lawyer, and he was brilliant. And it was years ago, and he's riding his horse, he got hit by lightning. He got knocked off his horse, and he didn't, he didn't know the gospel, he didn't know the Bible, so he just cried out to St. Anne, cried out to St. Anne, and he said, if you keep me from death, I promise to become a priest. You know, I'm telling the story of Martin Luther. So as a priest then, he studied the Bible, but he had problems as he studied the Bible because he kept coming against this thing in the Bible that he, that he said he hated, 
when it talked about the righteousness of God, it just seemed so, he, he hated it. He, he felt so condemned. Whenever he would read about the demands of God's righteousness, he just felt so condemned that he was literally a mess over it. His life was in complete chaos because of that. He was just burdened with, with, the, with the, the idea of God's unblinking stare of God's righteousness. And as you read his story, it's interesting what he put himself through because of his just, it wasn't like he was irreligious or he didn't believe in Jesus or he wasn't connected with the church because he was. But by his own testimony, he was lost because all he understood was the righteousness of the things that God demands of us. And then in studying the book of Romans carefully, he said it was like he was born again when he understood that there's the righteousness that is given to us, gifted to us. This is what we're talking about here. This makes all the difference. You, you should behave in a righteous way, but you can't until he places you in his righteousness. You want to remind yourself of his righteousness all day long and all night long when you wake up in the night. This is, this is the righteousness in which we stand this is the peace, and then there's the peace as well, the peace of the preparation of the gospel. We have confidence in the gospel, which is always in our hearts and ready on our tongue. Eternal salvation by grace through faith. It's what the Spirit inspired Paul to write clearly to us. So are you tracking with the first? So, so just think of this whole idea in two chunks. This chunk is these three things, there's six altogether, three we're talking about today, are things that are true about Christians, and we can take them to the bank, and we can sing about them, and we can remind ourselves of them, we can read books about them, and that's called putting them on. They're, they're ours, but the, the language used here is put on. Then over here, we have behaviors expected of us. It's exactly like, you see how that is? It's exactly like the book of Ephesians is written. If you could, maybe it's the other side for you. But anyway, the first three chapters are, here's who you are. And then the last chapter, so this is what we, so, so be a good loving husband. And don't exasperate your children. And be pure and be an honest employee. Be righteous because you stand in Christ's righteousness. Live at peace because you have the ultimate peace. Don't be shy. You know the truth is like a bell around your waist. You have the righteousness of Christ like a breastplate protecting you from anything that could ever harm you. And you are ready with the gospel, with the good news, which causes peace. You're ready. That's the way you should think. Now, that's the first chunk. But the second chunk is then, these are not only realities that we put on, but they are responsibilities that we take up or that we practice, if you will. In the power of the Spirit, we behave like those who are in Christ. Now, before I, before I go on, I just want to say this. Remember this. We wouldn't want to spend too much time. We don't want to skip over the first part and just jump into the second like we tend to do and talk about the behavior part because that's not the way the Bible does it. The Bible spends a lot of time on who you are before it tells you what he expects of you. So we should do the same. We should meditate on who we are in Christ. And of course, we have responsibilities that are very serious. But we should meditate on who we are in Christ. We should make sure we are in Christ and meditate on who we are in Christ. Each of these pieces of armor then should be seen as a command at this point. A spiritual responsibility, a part of our sanctification. One, take up truth. When doing battle, remember, you have truth hanging at your waist. Use it. Use truth. Identify lies. Do the heavy lifting. 
Truth never has to run from error. I call this the heavy lifting, the homework, digging through the pantry, of, if you will, uh, of what God has given you, identifying lies and half-truths that are damaging to you, your wife, your, your husband, your children, uh, the people in your church. Uh, as an elder, elders should always be scanning the horizon and watching for what lies is the devil trying to ruin our nice church with. And what truth, that's why you got to be in the word. You can identify truth from the word. If you're a Sunday school teacher, this is what you should be doing. You should be, the truth should be like right there on your belt. Let's draw it out and use it. We use truth here because we know that devil wants to take people to hell by lying to them. He wants to damage our souls in the same way. So we take up truth. We speak truth. We speak truth to ourselves. We live in authentic ways because we, we are truthful people. And because we are in, in truth. Does that make sense? So we think about that we're in truth, that we're in Christ and he's true and that, and that what we believe is true because he said it is. And then we practice truth and that's powerful. How do you fight like a Christian? You fight with truth. You hear me? You say, not me, I vote. Okay, wait, wait a minute. That's not in the passage today. I mean, there's probably a place for that, but it isn't in the passage. It's truth in the passage. It's tell the truth. It's like, but, you, you, but I get on my Facebook and I... I, I shoot down people. I shoot missiles at people I don't like. Okay, well, good for you. But um, what we're talking about today is truth. It's truth. Um, and so you take up the truth on your, your work on the evil within. And, that, and then take up righteousness. So when you do battle, you do right in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're actually, so you're in Christ who is righteous and you behave righteously. You have the power of the Holy Spirit who prompts you to behave in a righteous way and who empowers you to behave in a righteous way to keep, keep the law of God. There was a, this is what Christians should be, and sometimes they're not. There's a woman who's a pastor's wife, and she was praying for her mother and dad. They were lost, and she heard, a, she heard some good news. She'd been praying that God would bring somebody into their life that could help them see that Christians really are wonderful people. And so right about that time, a young couple, the young man was studying in seminary, rented their house. And the girl told everybody at prayer meeting, the pastor's wife said, praise God, this is an answered prayer because we have wanted our parents to meet really nice Christian people. But they had to ask the guy to leave because he didn't pay his rent on time and he left a big phone bill. When they talked to him about it, he said to them, like, you're so legalistic, where is your grace? So he distorted the theology to the, and so, but yesterday, Yesterday, I heard a different story. It was read publicly, Mike, so I'm going to just use it publicly again. Mike Vanderwalker's here. His mother, you know, went to be with the Lord, Virginia. And she was with us for a year or so as one of our back row ladies. Mike read this story, and I want to share it again with you. From a lady named Donna Sanders. Here's what he said yesterday in his mother's funeral. This Donna has written this note to Mike to remind him of something, how, her, how Mike's mother had an impact on her life. I'm not going to be able to attend your mother's funeral memorial service, but I wanted you both to know how important she was, especially to me. Your parents played a huge role in my husband Chuck's growth and being a part of the body of Christ. He was such a skeptic of Christians as a whole. His approach to believing was spending hours in the Word of God every night for months to disprove their theory that a person could actually live a life like they were preaching. 
Your parents invited him to a home builders class at their home on Sunday nights after church for snacks and fellowship. It was there that the truth was shown that we are a group of people who enjoyed being together, very normal people, caring people, and he was just super impressed by that. She went on to say, Mike went on, to, uh, Mike, Mike yesterday went on to say that Chuck not only became a follower of Jesus, but he went on to be a missionary in Taiwan. Our sister, Virginia Vanderwalker, was not just justified, but she lived a holy life and invited people over afterward, she and her husband, invited people over afterward for righteous acts, which adorned the gospel. And this is how Christians fight. They fight with muffins, you see. <laughs> did you notice that slide? Who did that? Was that? That slide was like, in August, we don't have Sunday school, but we have baked goods every morning. I thought that was, welcome to Bethel. We don't have Sunday school, but we have missionaries and we have baked goods. Muffins, donuts, that's how you fight. You fight with acts of love and kindness. You fight with acts of service. Did you ever hear this? Remember this old hymn we used to sing? Lead on, O King Eternal. The day of March has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest, your, your tents will be our home. Through days of preparation, your grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. And then there's this, there's this uh, verse. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease and holiness shall whisper a sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Or you can say muffins after church. It's loving, it's kindness, and it's paying your bills or asking forgiveness when you didn't. It's righteous acts, it's righteous lives, it's living out of our righteousness of Christ by doing righteousness, by taking up truth, by being prepared to proclaim the gospel of peace. And by the way, when, this, when our sister left the back row at Bethel, she left the church militant to join the church triumphant. This is the way the saints always said that. There's the church militant. There's the church triumphant. The church triumphant is in heaven, and the battle has been won for them. There's a little cleaning up to do that Jesus will take care of with his saints, but the, the, the battle's won, and we now are here to slug it out. She is in the church triumphant. We are in the church militant. So we take up preparation for the gospel peace. You know what that means. That's plague. That's being ready to witness. That's when doing battle, always being ready. The boots are readiness. They're, they're a sign of readiness, according to the scriptures. So we're always ready with the gospel. We're ready to preach the gospel to ourselves, to, to remind other believers, our children, and of all things, to give it to people who don't know it. So let's review. How do we do spiritual warfare? Well, we, 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 we put on these realities and we take up these responsibilities. Get it? Worship God, praise him, thank him for truth and imputed righteousness and the gospel of peace. And then we do battle with truth and we're right with God and we do what's right and we're ready with the gospel of peace. And that person will be a danger to the enemy and all that's foul and all that's dark and all that's evil. And that person will be strengthened with might by his power in the inner person. And that person will be filled with all the fullness of God and this person will be strong in the Lord and in, the power, in his mighty power. And this person will taste of the immeasurable greatness of his mighty power. Lead on, O King Eternal, we follow not with fears, for gladness breaks like morning where'er your face appears. 
Your cross is lifted o'er us. We journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. Howard Sugden, years ago pastored in this town, cross town, Ganson, who's quite a preacher. Even when he was an elderly man, he was a very fiery, capable, zealous preacher. I heard him one time in the, in the 80s in Grand Rapids. And I always remember what he preached on. He preached on the son of God goes forth to war. Who follows in his train? That was his message. The son of God goes forth to war. Who follows in his train? Jesus says, let's go. Who's with me? And the answer needs to come back. I'm with you. And, and Sugden preached this powerful, stirring message. That he was a pretty sharp guy. He had his hair was kind of wavy, and he had it combed really close to his head, I remember. I don't even mean to be silly here. But his hair it was wavy and combed close to his head. And he was an older man. And by, by the time he got done with this message, his hair was like standing out like this. I was like, this guy means what he's saying. He'd been around the horn a couple of times. And if, and if you care about your wife, you care about your family, you care about your husband, you care about your kids and your grandkids, you got to understand, if we don't fight, that doesn't mean a fight isn't happening. If we sit on the porch, that doesn't mean that devil's going to, and his demons are going to sit on the porch. But the son of man goes forth to war who follows in his train. This is how the whole hymn goes, give me a minute and we'll have a prayer. The son of God, he, he, the, the hymn writer talks about the captain of our salvation, Jesus. The son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood red banner streams afar. Who follows in his train? Who best can drink his cup of woe, triumphant over pain? Who patient bears his cross below? Who follows in his train? Then he talks about Stephen the martyr in this verse. He says, the martyr first whose eagle eye could pierce beyond the grave, who saw his master in the sky and called on him to save. Like him with pardon on his tongue in midst of mortal pain, he prayed for them that did him wrong. Who follows in his train? And then he talks about the apostles who were martyrs, a glorious band, the chosen few, on whom the Spirit came, 12 valiant spirit saints, their hope they knew, and mocked the cross and flame. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. They bowed their necks, the death to feel. Who follows in their train? And then he talks about all the martyrs in heaven in the last verse. A noble army, men and boys, the matron and the maid, Around the Savior's throne rejoice in robes of light arrayed. They climb the steep ascent of heaven through peril, toil, and pain. Oh God, to us may grace be given to follow in their train. He's given us what we need to follow in the fight. And he's equipped us to follow in his fight. Who would join him in the fight? Stand with me.